Now, if you don't know very much about cycling, you might wonder why people riding in a group will ride so close to one another, one right behind the other with their wheels almost touching. It's not because cyclists have extremely poor depth perception or that they have some weird kind of death wish. They're doing something called drafting. Drafting is one of the big benefits of cycling in a group. When you draft, you can go faster and farther with less effort than you can when riding alone. Well, what is drafting and cycling? The basic approach is for a group of cyclists to ride in a line close behind one another, taking turns, riding at the front of the line, pulling. The person at the front of the line is pushing the air out of the way, literally for the riders behind them, and a low pressure zone is also created immediately behind that front rider, which literally draws air forward, actually pulling the rider behind them forward. This results in the riders behind the person in the front having to expend much less energy to maintain that same speed. Studies have been done that show that a cyclist can reduce their aerodynamic drag by as much as 30% by drafting behind another cyclist. There's also a psychological boost gained when riding in a group. You gain mental strength to keep going through the difficult spots and when fatigue starts to settle in. Riding alone requires much more mental toughness and self-control to keep yourself going. Well, why am I talking about cycling? Because we receive a similar benefit by following Jesus Christ together rather than doing it alone. We can draft on each other and receive a psychological benefit as well, enabling us to travel easier, accomplish more, maintain our focus and our resilience better when facing challenge, and so on. Well, today is the third in a series of Bible studies looking at the basic blueprint the first believers followed found in Acts 2.42 to remind us of the essentials that we need to be devoting ourselves to as followers of Jesus. Go ahead and flip over to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, They, those first disciples in the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There are four things mentioned that the early Christians devoted themselves to, which formed the foundation of their lives and their church. They were the apostles' teaching, or the word of God, fellowship, the breaking of bread, or worshiping, and prayer. Now we've talked about Worship and the Word of God, and today we're going to talk about fellowship. The word fellowship is often used by church people to refer to the social activities that they're engaged in with one another. People getting together for a meal, a cup of coffee, to read the Bible together, go on a hike, spend time with other believers in a hundred different ways. These are all referred to as fellowship. And they are certainly a part of fellowship, but fellowship is much more than that. 
The first believers devoted themselves to fellowship. The Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia, which means participation, sharing, contributing, partnership. The believers in the early church, they shared life with each other. They were part of a new family, the family God created in and through Jesus Christ. Their connection with each other was deeper than a philosophical agreement about a set of ideas. It was deeper than being from the same hometown or graduating from the same class. It was deeper than being a member of the same social club or part of the same football nation or political party or whatever other kinds of things people hold in common with each other. They recognized that the connection that they shared between them was of the deepest kind possible for human beings. They were connected spiritually through Jesus Christ, which, according to Jesus himself, supersedes all other relationships. We're members of one body, the body of Christ. The church is called the body of Christ, and the Apostle Paul, he uses the analogy of a human body to teach us how the people in the church are supposed to function as a unified whole, even though we're made up of many different parts. If we flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and let's begin reading in verse 4. It says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The spiritual gifts, talents, abilities, interests, opportunities, perspectives, backgrounds, and other distinctives that we each have are given to us by God for the common good, it tells us in verse 7. The common good. Not for our own selfish pleasure and gain, but for the common good of the body of Christ, the church. The common good for all of us. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We belong to each other, being members of the one body of Christ. Verse, let's jump down to verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 12. It says, Even so... The body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, 
I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, given giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Some of the main ideas that come from this passage are these. We are all members of the one body, the church, and we each have a part to play in it. Christian, our primary call in the church is to contribute, not to consume. It's to contribute, not to consume. Are you a consumer or a contributor in the church? Do you take and take and take, but rarely if ever pitch in and contribute? Is the church here mainly to serve you, or are you here to serve? Are you looking to see what you can get out of the church, or are you looking to see how you can add value to the church? Now remember, we're not talking about a building here. We're talking about people. Another truth that we get out of this is we need each other. When any one of us is not showing up, doing our part, the body, the church, is incomplete and it suffers. Our participation in the body, the church, is not optional. It's essential. Third, we are not all the same, nor should we try to be the same. The Lord's not given each of us a unique the Lord has given each of us a unique expression of Christ that is to be offered in service to the body of the church. We're connected to one another. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. When one of us succeeds, we all succeed. Fifth, there must not be division between the parts of the body, the church. We must be united now, unity is not the same as uniformity. We are all different, but we must not let our differences divide us. There is something more important here than you and me and our own personal interests. When we are part of the body of Christ, we are part of a larger whole. Now, in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which follows this passage that we have just read, Paul talks about the importance of love in the body of Christ, the church. See, you may be thinking, you know, I don't know how I can love some of these people in the church. I mean, I don't even like them. How can I love them? Well, the love that Paul's talking about is not an emotional love. It's not a love of feelings. It's an act of the will. It is a choice that we make. We choose to love one another. We act in a loving way toward one another, regardless of 
what our feelings might be. We seek one another's good over our own, no matter how we feel. We love each other by serving each other, caring for each other, looking out for each other, putting each other before ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13.4 is the definition that Paul gives us. It says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You, you see, we can do all of that stuff whether we feel a certain way or not. We choose to do these things. And this is the kind of love that we are called to give to one another. Let's flip over to Psalm 133. I like this psalm. In this short psalm of only three verses, we have one of the most beautiful tributes to fellowship and unity among the people of God found in the whole Bible. David is credited as the author of this psalm. And this psalm is one of the songs of ascent which are a group of psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, which were sung by the Jewish people as they made their way up the mountain passes to the city of Jerusalem and the temple for the annual feast. They were ascending the mountain to meet with the Lord. These annual feasts brought Jewish people together from all over the world, different tribes, different walks of life, various social strata and local cultures. And this psalm, it celebrates the beautiful fellowship and unity that these people shared with one another as they gathered to worship the Lord. And for us, as the people of God in our day, the church, the body of Christ, we too, we come from all over the world, different tribes, different walks of life, various social strata and, and local cultures. Let us celebrate the fellowship and the unity that we share with one another in Jesus Christ as we gather to worship the Lord. Psalm 133, it says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Verse 1, it says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. It's good. The word translated good is to be understood in the widest sense of the word. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's desirable. It's to be sought after. It's pleasant. The word translated pleasant means lovely, sweet, delightful, wonderful. It's good, beautiful, awesome, pleasant, lovely, sweet, delightful to be sought after when there is fellowship and unity among God's people. Unity. Unity is an idea that is talked about a lot. 
in our society, but it is not something we see very much of in our society. We live in a deeply divided world. We live in a deeply divided country. The unity being talked about in this psalm is unity among God's people, unity in the church, unity among the followers of Jesus, unity in the body of Christ, unity among us. Now, I said before, unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity in the body of Christ doesn't mean that our individual distinctives are to be stamped out. Unity doesn't mean that we are to become a single homogenized mass of sameness. Quite the opposite is the case. We're to use our unique differences and perspectives and insights and strengths and abilities and passions and interests and talents and gifts to what? To serve one another. Seeking self-interest kills fellowship and unity. Seeking others' interests builds fellowship and unity. When we are self-centered, it kills fellowship and unity. I think that is a good commentary on what's going on in our country and in our world. It is a self-centered world and country. Well, after making this declaration in the first verse, David illustrates in the next two verses the goodness and the pleasantness of true fellowship and unity among the people of God. It says it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down onto the collar of his robe. And Aaron is the priest. Now, when we first read this verse, we might not think of it as being a good thing to have oil poured on our head and have it run down over our cheeks and beard and down onto our neck and onto the collar of our garment. This is not a familiar experience for us in our time and culture. But in the days that this psalm was written, it would have been understood as a wonderful thing. The aroma of the oil, its symbolic meaning, its comforting feel would have filled their hearts with overwhelming joy. The formula for this special anointing oil, it's actually given to us in the Bible. It's found in Exodus 30, verses 22 through 25. It says, the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant calamus, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hin of of olive oil, make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Essential oil diffusers are a thing these days. Maybe you've got one. And some of you who are into that sort of thing, you might recognize some of these essential oils. You might actually have them. Myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, cassia. This blended oil, it had this wonderful, sweet aroma. I mean, one of the things that I enjoy going in some of these, you know, crafty stores is the cinnamon oil that you smell when you walk in there at this time of the year. I love that smell. 
Some of you are big fans of, you know, the cinnamon spice, pumpkin spice <laughs> drinks. It's the same smell, too. Try to imagine having this delicious, fragrant oil poured over your head with the aroma, feeling everything around you spilling down over your cheeks and onto the collar of your garment. The fellowship and unity the people of God are to have with one another is to be a wonderful, pleasant, sacred thing like this oil that was used to anoint the Lord's priests. Anointing oil in the Old Testament carried a number of symbolic images which are relevant for us in this way too. The oil was an image of gladness and joy. Our fellowship and unity is a joyful thing. The oil was an image of comfort and blessing. Our fellowship and unity is a comfort and blessing to one another. The oil was an image of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And our fellowship and unity is evidence of the Holy Spirit with us. The oil was a symbol of consecration, of being set apart as holy to serve the Lord. And our fellowship and unity, it glorifies the Lord and is a holy thing. As the sweet smell of the oil filled the air with a sense of God's goodness, so the sweetness of our fellowship and unity fills the world around us with a sense of God's goodness. Verse 3, it says, It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in the region of Israel. Mount Hermon is actually located in modern-day Syria with its southern slope extending down into the Israel-occupied portion of the Golan Heights. But Mount Hermon is proverbially known for its perpetual snow-covered peaks. One of its nicknames is Mountain of Snow because of the snow caps that are always present. The Mount Hermon mountain range is the greatest hydrologic resource in that area. Because of the height of these mountains, they capture this tremendous amount of precipitation which provides the nourishing water for what would otherwise be a dry desert area. Mount Zion, on the other hand, is little more than a hill, especially in comparison to the Grand Mount Hermon. The name Mount Zion is used to refer to the hill that the temple was on. Sometimes the whole city of Jerusalem itself would be called Mount Zion. When the people of God live together in fellowship and unity, it's like the dew of the giant Mount Hermon. Hermon is falling upon Zion. Fellowship and unity among the people of God is like the refreshing, nourishing, invigorating, life-giving rain of Mount Hermon falling upon the parched, thirsty land of Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. When we dwell together in fellowship and unity with one another, the Lord bestows his blessing upon us. 
Genuine fellowship and unity among the people of God is something that God gives us as we seek relationship with him. Derek Kidner wrote, True unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. It's a blessing more than an achievement. We're commanded to stick together. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, you can flip over there. The writer of Hebrews writes, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We're told to spur one another on, to motivate each other toward love and good deeds. We're to consider how to motivate each other, give thought to how we can help each other follow Christ more closely, love people and do good deeds. We're told to encourage one another. This world beats us up. Let's pick each other up rather than knocking one another down. It's part of our sinful nature to point out other shortcomings and failures. It's the nature of Christ to seek to build others up. It's, it's, it's easy to knock someone down. It doesn't take any creativity or effort at all. It just comes natural to us. But to find effective and meaningful ways to encourage another person, that takes thoughtful effort. Let's be the helping hand and the listening ear and the thoughtful voice of encouragement to one another. It says here we're not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We're commanded to stick together. There are times for riding solo. But in general, we need to ride together. We strengthen one another when we are together, like cyclists drafting on one another. As dividing lines continue to be drawn more and more between people groups, we need one another more than ever. It's too easy for us to forget where our deepest loyalties are to be then we start choosing sides over lesser things and we allow those divisions to come into the church and divide us. We can't let that happen. Ephesians 4.4 says, There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're to do this all the more, it says, as we see the day approaching. The second coming of Jesus Christ is nearer now than ever before. We need to help one another now more than ever before as that day approaches. We're collecting together some of the ideas that we talked about here What's needed for fellowship and unity to grow among us? Well, fellowship and unity are built on a foundation of selflessness. 
It's built on a foundation of selflessness. Fellowship and unity can't happen when everyone is out for their self. We need to be selfless, looking out for one another, seeking to serve one another, putting our own interests to the side for the sake of one another. Our world tells us, look out for yourself. And Jesus tells us, look out for one another. Fellowship and unity rely on a common shared commitment to Jesus Christ. They rely on a common shared commitment to Jesus Christ. Our identity is first as a follower of Jesus Christ, and only second as whatever else we may be culturally, politically, socially, or whatever identifying with. I'm not sticking with you because we have the same political views or are of the same culture or of the same color or of the same age group or have similar educational backgrounds or grew up in the same neighborhood or have similar interests. I'm sticking with you because we both believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and came back to life on the third day and we have committed our lives to following Him. I'm sticking with you because we have both been brought to life by the same Holy Spirit who now dwells in us. That doesn't imply that other things are unimportant. In fact, out of love for you, I should respect other things about you, like your culture and color and background, more than I might otherwise. Because that's part of the call that Jesus has on my life, to put your interests before my own. Fellowship and unity require regular maintenance. It's not a one-and-done kind of thing. It's a living organism kind of thing that needs to be constantly cared for. We need to continue to invest time and energy into our fellowship and unity with one another for it to remain strong and healthy. We must not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, as it says in Hebrews 10.25. Finally, fellowship and unity in its purest, most life-producing form is a gift from the Lord. Fellowship and unity among God's people, it's evidence of the Holy Spirit's good work in our lives. Let us pray. Lord, bless us with the gift of fellowship and unity. So in closing today, I want to remind you, do you remember what I told you about the benefits of cyclists riding together, drafting? Let's do this ride together as followers of Jesus. I close with a little insight from Vance Havner, who said, snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them stick together, they can stop traffic. <laughs> Let's bow our heads. 
Father, we, we pray for fellowship and unity among us, that you would bless us, Lord. That your Holy Spirit would be present among us, moving among us, moving between us and around us and building us together as one body of Christ. Lord, may we serve each other, put one another first, have one another our concern rather than ourself. May we follow your example, Jesus, of giving yourself for us. Cause our love for one another to grow, Lord, both in deed and in feelings, Lord. May that beautiful oil of your Spirit anoint us, Lord, our fellowship and our unity. In Jesus' name, amen.